How did Barbie hit a billion dollars in three weeks? If you do an ad that makes money in the short term but ruins the brand for the long term, it would be an example of what not to do. Fortunately, complexity science has come up out of the scientific world, and it gives us finally in business a way to look at some of the really unusual, funky things that happen and make sense of them. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hello, everybody. Marketing Podcast. Another episode, number 31. Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. Excellent. Excellent. So we have a full agenda. All right. So hot off the press this morning. From Variety Magazine, it turns out that the Barbie movie, which we discussed a few weeks back or a few episodes back, has now surpassed a billion dollars in global revenue. Wow. And I'm, I'm not surprised, actually. I thought that they were doing a really good job leading up to that. And the trailers made it appear that the movie got Barbie in a way that was going to be really popular. And apparently it is. Half of that billion is in the U.S., half the billion is overseas. And of course, what we're not hearing is what Mattel's toy sales are, because I would suspect those are not doing badly either. Yeah. Yeah. What a juggernaut. Yeah. So they're a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> they are. And it didn't take him long. Now you could say that, wow, like it took Barbie however many weeks it's been. But of course you have to add all the upfront work and all the infrastructure that they've built mm -hmm. over the many years, both in the movie studios as well as Barbie brand itself. But man, if you have done all of that, then if you can go to a billion dollar mm -hmm. revenue within just a few short weeks, that's quite impressive. It is impressive. And it's particularly impressive because they're dealing with, from what I read about the movie, and I confess, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. But I haven't seen it yet. But when I'm reading, they do a really nice job of, I don't know, stepping around some of the highly sensitive issues, acknowledging them, letting them be. And, you know, Barbie is so connected with especially U.S. culture, but worldwide culture. You know, they've done a nice job of making a movie that accepts that in honors it. I was just going to say that for them to have done that nice fraction internationally is really quite something too. Yeah, it is. And I don't, I'm not a specialist in toys nor in toy international sales. So obviously Barbie has a lot of strength internationally and it's good to see. I, I have to confess, I, you know, I, sometimes you see an effort like this and it pays out and you just, it just feels satisfying as a marketer to mm. see somebody who did a lot of smart things and it paid for. So I wonder if this will impact investments because if you can build a movie like this, and mm -hmm. get a billion dollar, there will be a lot of money that wants to chase this kind of an ROI. There is. Existing I, infrastructure, yeah. et etc. right? Yeah, I think that what's what's tricky is Barbie is such a unique case, right? I mean, you, you've got a an intellectual property value here that's been building since 1959 when Barbie was introduced. And Barbie has a cultural presence that is massive, 
both good and bad, but, you know, very big resource. I mean, if you kind of say, well, those are all assets, the assets they were able to use here to make that billion dollars are huge. And Mm -hmm. not every, you know, that's going to be a tough thing to replicate. It's kind of like when people talk about the original Apple Super Bowl commercial and they're like, oh, see, what a great thing. And you're like, that could only happen once. It happened once. They did it well. But, you know, their second one didn't do that. And nobody since has been able to leverage the kind of potency out of a Super Bowl commercial that Apple did. And even Apple couldn't have done it again. It's a one-time thing. And every now and then you have one-time things and, you know, you should enjoy them. And yeah, have fun I want to come them. back to this, do it one time and can I leverage it more? Yeah. Because I think it's, it's quite relevant to the next topic we're going to talk about. But I want to remind our listeners that we talked about Barbie several months ago when mm-hmm. they just had the trailer mm-hmm. and we talked about how this looked intriguing and how this would increase their TAM and it would give them another franchise opportunity, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But to your point, they've been curating the brand. You've been building all that infrastructure in ways that allows them to do that. But let's take that to our next topic, which is the cartoon of the week. <laughs> so our cartoon of the week comes out of the New Yorker and it's got this obviously big boss sitting behind a very modern desk in a very modern office with palm trees in the office and looking at hills in the distance who is speaking to two people sitting in chairs across to him and he says your screenplay is amazing it's fresh original like nothing we've ever seen before but we could fix that (laughs) that's right that's right so that's really relevant to this thread because if you have barbie and it just did a billion and it's not even Mm -hmm. over yet the pressure to just do a derivative and another derivative Mm -hmm. and to just extract as much value as you can out of this franchise that you've built is immense And that goes straight against some novel new idea that could sound wonderful, but nevertheless represents risk because it hasn't. So that's the balance between I did it once and it's not repeatable with I did it once and it did well, so I have proof that it works. How do you balance that two ends of the spectrum? I think one of the things people have to recognize is the idea of being able to do it again, and maybe you don't get a billion dollars in three weeks like Barbie did, but maybe you only get 800 million. That's still really good. So, you know, not a problem. But if you're going to do that, it's all in the details. I think, you know, if we look at the franchise, the the Marvel franchise, you know, the Marvel Mm, universe, as they've gone along, a lot of their first movies are just outstanding. Really, really interesting. Really, really good. Over time, it gets harder to maintain that and have it be fresh. And I think we see it everywhere. You see it in TV shows, you see it in movies, you see it in books. But uh, the business pressure that's put onto people is one of, we want a reliable hit. So everybody already knows these people, therefore we got a reliable hit by just churning out another one. I think the history of sequels suggests that's not true. That if you're going to do a second one and you still have to figure out a way to make fresh. I think in the Marvel universe of of Thor when Taika Waititi took over and directed his first movie for the Marvel Universe. It was so different. It was really fun because Mm. it changed away from it. And I think we get stuck in brand management of thinking, okay, well, we we had this good thing happen, so now we have to protect that good thing at all costs and stop taking creative risks. But you have to take some creative risks or your brand will die. You know, I think we're going to talk some more about complexity issues after a bit. But one of the truths 
is, for example, with ecosystems in the natural world, the more we as humans try to keep an ecosystem as it is with no change, the less healthy the ecosystem is. It's a guaranteed way to destroy an ecosystem, to try to preserve it at all costs. And I think that's the same with brands and with intellectual property. And, you know, they have to change. It's just what happens. Of course, not all changes have to be episodes one, two, and three of Star Wars. Right. You know, which were such a radical change that it was really difficult for people to accept them. But you can nevertheless shift the risk into another dimension Mm -hmm. and do that for a while before you run out of that too. But then the Mm -hmm. whole process of allocating risk and turning it into some kind of a mathematics makes the whole thing boring for the creative mind too. Well, it's not only boring for the creative mind. I think the problem is if it gets boring for the creative mind, it's boring for everybody. Hmm. You know, and I think that's what people forget is that, you know, as we're trying to create these things, and I don't know how many Marvel movies we've had, but I can't even count them at this point. I know that within my family, we're not watching Marvel. We're just tired Hmm. of it, you know? And a lot of that is... Yeah, a lot of the choices are just kind of getting repetitive, and we've seen that before. And we could probably, if we knew, if I knew more about it, we'd dig into that a bit. What I've seen with TV shows is there's a tendency that they have the right crew on the first season, they have most of the right crew on the second season, but then the right crew wants to be off doing something new. And so they leave, and you've got a different crew, but they no longer have that fundamental mm-hmm. uh, learning that says, this is what really rocks. And then it's much harder for that next crew to figure out how to do it right. And I'm not taking anything away from the next crews. It's just hard. You know, you can't, you know. So there was something along these lines on Twitter this past week, which was the criticism of various ads. Like, this ad is terrible. How can you do that? You know, again, it was kind of in the context of how dumb can you get, which is the refrain that I see in marketing circles criticizing each other without understanding all the little background. So tell us what that was about. Yeah, Everard Hunter is a chief marketing officer out of Australia, and I've followed him for several years. And I really think he's a, he's got a really good head on his shoulders as he approaches marketing. If somebody had posted an Expedia ad, screen grab of it, and it shows this honestly a little bit dumpy, but quite neat, but a little bit dumpy hotel room. And the Expedia ad says, with Expedia member pricing, you could go see more of the world's sand for less. So clearly implying a beach experience and stuff. Now, and this person had posted this saying, this might be one of the worst travel ads I've ever seen. And Everhard objected. But as I looked at the ad, I got to tell you, for me, I've stayed at those beach hotels it just captured it. I mean, as I looked at the ad, I got the, you know, the smell of the beach nearby. I got the sand that's probably buried <laughs> in the carpet, you know, but that's what they do because it's the beach. The room gets beat up and not all of us are going to want to necessarily go to the beach at uh, in the Ritz-Carlton. So I had a tremendous kind of nostalgia that came out of the photo for me, but this other person <laughs> saying, oh, the worst travel ad I've ever seen. Everard's comment was, the only thing we should care about this is whether this ad generate sales. Absolutely. Good or bad ad is irrelevant. Knowing some of Expedia's ad testing work, I'd quietly guess this ad is smashing it right, with the right, intended right. target segment. I think that he's absolutely right on. It's the difficult thing about observing other people's ads. So I don't think it's irrelevant, but I think it is obviously the most important parameter. Mm-hmm. I think if you do an ad that makes money in the short term, but ruins the brand for the long term, then that would be an example of what not to do. 
But in agreement with that post and what you were saying, did it work? Does it work? That really is the most important thing. The other thing about the image, you know, while I agree with you, I also saw it and it looked fine to me. And I say, you know, I'm at the beach. I'm not probably going to be at the room at all. And I'm not like, this is really for somebody who is there to be at the beach, not to stay at the resort and just kind of take advantage of amenities and look out the window with your infinity pool sort of a thing. It was very much that sort of a segment. But the other thing is, how did the image come about? Was it automated and just grabbed from some website? Nobody even looked at it because that's just a programmatic thing that they do. How big an ad was this? How much dollars were put on it? And what sort of a medium and what sort of a media for that matter? Who was a targeted ad? Maybe it was intentionally controversial to go viral. So that sort of tells me that without even thinking too hard, you can come up with just a half a dozen dimensions that make this really, really complex to just opine on like that. So it is, we'll talk complex in a minute, because what I would do in a human is one idea first, which is this is, I think, to my mind, one of the problems with ad award shows. Fundamentally, when people have advertising award shows from Khan to Clio's to the local awards in any town, nobody evaluates the ads understanding the situation, mm. right? It's more like an artist curating an art to appear at the art museum. It's not actually knowing whether the ad's any good, you know, because you can't know that without knowing the background, the fundamentals. What was the challenge the company was facing at this point that it needed to solve? And I produce, you know, ads that we know did brilliantly for clients and they get turned down by uh, award shows. And I've sometimes asked judges about that and they're like, well, you know, it's not any good. Like, like, you don't know it's not any good. You know, what you know is you don't like the creative of That's it. Right. I accept that. You know, <laughs> That's right. I, so from my mind, I, I wish that all advertising award shows would become curated art shows. Let's just put right. it up front. We hired this guy or this woman and she chose what she liked. Okay, so now we know what she likes. It's not about whether the advertising is good or bad, it's what she likes. Okay, great. Right. That's of interest to me, but I know of no advertising shows, including the Effies, which actually might be one of the worst of them, that can judge whether ads are effective. And uh, I've written a blog post about Effies and how badly they can screw it up. But Yes, uh, and the circumstances around why a particular ad is run, for how long it's run, how much all of that is all varies in a big way. Yeah, right? it's all uh, very, very in, thick. In, in, a, in a B2B world, sometimes you have a partner that comes to you and says, I need to do something in this particular area for this particular product. And they're a good trusted partner and you're collaborative and you say, okay, let's do it together. That's, it wasn't part of your marketing plan, but it is part of their marketing plan. So you just do it and it may not be the best thing. So there are other reasons why some of these ads come about too. But in this case, in agreement with you, I think the ad probably was pretty effective. And especially in the hospitality world where a lot of things are really mingling and commingling in unexpected ways. You know, hotels now present apartments and Airbnb is presenting hotels and mm -hmm. and it's like all getting changed and you know if you prepay you save money if breakfast is included it's additional the whole product set is changing so i think this really is very good fertile ground to talk about complexity and also in recognition and reminder of the book you're writing about yeah. complexity in marketing, because every day I'm really faced with the complexity in marketing in a way that is highly 
underappreciated. Well, and so for listeners who don't know, I'm writing a book about complexity. It's about complexity in business in general. And especially it's about how critical complexity is to success, that it is one of those key determining factors that mostly we've ignored. And fortunately, complexity science has come up out of the scientific world. And it gives us finally in business a way to look at some of the really unusual, funky things that happen and make sense of them. So to me, it's been a really incredible discovery to kind of look at this like, oh God, I see how this stuff works. Now, unfortunately, it's complexity and there are no easy answers. It's complex. So yeah, it's complex. (laughs) But you know how most of our business books these days offer 10 steps to complete effectiveness and perfection for the rest of your company's history? Yeah, well, I am not writing that kind of book. I'm really wanting to look at, honestly, this issue, which is complexity. Now, for listeners who are wondering how we define that, let me give you a real quick backup on it, which is there's a in science as well as in business, there's a fundamental assumption called reduction. And what reduction says, you look at your problem, you break it into parts, and if you solve each part, the problem is solved. And that works. You know, there's times that works really, really well. And a lot of science is based on reduction. What scientists discovered, though, is there are problems where that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is if you take your problem and you split it into parts, but the parts are interacting with each other, you know, where changing one part changes the other instantly, you can no longer look at the parts separately. And that dominates business because in business, we have so many challenges we face that are kind of masses of interacting parts. And you know, the term or the definition I use is that complexity arises when you have interacting parts such that what results is more than a sum of the parts. Mm. You know, And sometimes it's more than a sum in a really, really good way, really productive. You know, Apple Computer has tons of examples of things they did where the interactions were phenomenal. But parts can interact badly for you too and create destruction. It's more to come to understand by looking at how parts interact. You mean when things reinforce each other? Yeah, essentially it's when things reinforce uh-huh. or resonate with each other. You know, you have two things that happen and you get resonance and then the resonance backfires on you. Yeah. Or creates a really good thing. You know, in physical world, if anybody, I drove over the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, if you haven't looked it up, there's great video online of the one they built in the 1930s. And it had a resonance. And when wind would blow through the bridge at a certain energy, it would transfer that energy in a feedback loop into the bridge. And the deck would move up and down 20 feet. And eventually the deck, it fell down because bridges are not designed to have the bridge deck, the roadway move up and down by 20 feet. The other resonance we were talking about earlier is that's how we tune radios. You know, when you're looking for that radio station on the old dials, for those of you who are too young, sorry about that, but you have these old dials, you go back and forth. And when you hit the resonance, the station pops and becomes absolutely clear. So that's a resonation a resonant thing. Well, that's what we have happen in the market. How did Barbie hit a billion dollars in three weeks? She resonated. Yes, she did good work up front. Mattel did great work advertising it. Da, da, da. But you don't get a billion dollar in viewer, in audience income just by advertising mm. it. You get that because people who saw it loved it and told other people to go see it. And somehow it builds because, you know, this is a resonance that happens through an audience. So when somebody comes away and says, oh yeah, it was great. You got to go see You also have a whole bunch of things that are, to your point, are reinforcing each other. 
So you have That's a great right. movie. That movie has a cultural presence. You have a distribution mechanism. The movie theaters are ready to do it. So all the pieces, all the cylinders are hitting at the same time for this to work. Another really great example of that is Microsoft Office. When they first came along, they were the first ones that had word processing and a spreadsheet and a presentation graphics, and you could cut out of one and paste into the other. That was unheard of. So it became a suite, and it was really the first time that a suite of products were reinforcing each other in a way that sort of made up for any even deficiencies that each individual one may have had, because collectively, they were playing a different game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly it. And of course, in that case, you also have an advantage, and I'm not going to go to the one the government didn't like, but you do get an advantage from the fact that they're the same people that make the operating system that most of the most people were using at the time. That's right. You know, as an unrepentant Mac user, it didn't affect me that way. But, you know, still, it's not just Bob's new office program. It's Microsoft's. And so you've got something really unique and different in it. You've got Microsoft behind it. You've got a strength because it's going into all the corporations so that then now everybody uses it. So the thing about connections and about interacting parts with complexity is that we like things to be simple where we just say, well, A causes B. And that's not really the way marketing works. The way marketing works is we have a lot of factors that are playing together at once. Even if you take just the marketing four Ps, product, price, the places distributed, and what you say about advertising or promotion, those, you change one of those, you have to reevaluate the other three. Hmm. If you change the price, you have to reevaluate what does that do to my distribution? How does that affect what I'm doing in advertising? And what about the product? Or if I change something in the product, I have to read to the other three. They're all connected and that we have to be able to look at things by balancing all these connected things. And I think, you know, if I go back to Everhard's comment about this Expedia ad, you know, the point is, does it work, not is this ad perfect? You know, one of the misnomers in the world is that when you're up against complexity, a lot of people will say, well, if you make all the parts perfect, then the whole will be perfect too. And that's actually the opposite of what's truth. You know, Edwards Deming observed that if the whole is optimal, none of the parts will be. Because there's compromises. You have to make compromises for the whole result to be best. Anyway, I'm, I'm now I'm off ranting, so I guess I'll, uh, I'll pause for a moment <laughs> on my rant. That's right. I was actually thinking that if you change the price, you may very well change the target market. Yeah. So you're like playing the game in a different field altogether. So yeah. some of these changes do that. They do. They make it well. And think about. I mean, the reason I mentioned distribution is if you've got one set of distribution that expects. I mean, distribution is always depends on specific things like price points. And if you change the price, you have to revisit distribution. They may not be okay with it. They may not right. You know, Absolutely, may not work there. Or it may be that your customers won't let you go there. I worked the company who had before I got there worked with Ginsu knives. I don't know if you remember Ginsu knives. I do. I, got, I do. Yeah, I, I think do. you got a thousand knives for twenty five bucks or something <laughs> like that. You know, I mean, they were, they were really cheap and they sold bazillions of sets. Well, they decided that they wanted to make a better knife, and so they wanted to make Ginzu Professional. So they were a twenty five dollar knife set, and all of a sudden they priced it for one hundred and ten. Miserable failure, but not because of creative. No creative could have saved that because customers saw Ginzu as cheap knives that were functional, not as premium 
knives I would seek out. It's a non-starter. Yeah. And also when you charge that much, it really is, again, a different client base. And those guys have a very different depth of understanding of what it is they're buying and why. The joke with Ginsu was that the only thing that could cut through Ginsu 1 was Ginsu 2. <laughs> <laughs> Because they had an ad where they could actually cut another knife right, with their did. knife. <laughs> oh, God, I do remember like that. the handle of another knife would be cut with, with the Ginsu. That's right. I do remember that. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure that all draws together. But I think one of the challenges we have in marketing is this question of we work with interacting parts that are related to each other. And too often, we try to isolate one part and only care about that one part. And well, you, know, you hear it sometimes, I hear it from product people. Well, we'll make the perfect product and then no marketing is needed. It doesn't work that way. Oh, I just heard that recently about product-led growth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I don't know what, because you have to charge for something. And I imagine that would be the quote product. But you know, the comment I had was that these are all really good, but no product sells itself. And maybe the work that was necessary to sell it wasn't done in the marketing department. You know, we both made that point that you can do a lot of good marketing without a marketing department. And sometimes you do, but, but that work needs to get done regardless. Yeah. It still has to be communicated. You still have to understand where it's going to fit. I wrote a blog post once about copiers back in the 1990s when they put them on networks and all of a sudden companies were all networked and they all went to copier companies and said, well, we want our copiers on our networks. So the copier companies responded and made brilliantly executed products that would go onto a network. Well, I don't know how brilliant, but I believe that they were really well done. Actually, the printers were a primary attack surface for hackers for a good while. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they put them on networks, but what wasn't paid attention to is that that product change was inherently connected to other parts of the company. So that the copier company now, which knew copiers well and knew very you know thoroughly how to deliver copiers into departments or into areas in order to do copying. Okay. So the management said, all we're doing is adding an extra technical piece. So we'll just hire some people to know that technical piece. Well, my brother did that. And he said it was a mess because all of a sudden now at the client site, instead of having purchasing agent and the people using it and somebody who maintains it, now you're interacting with the network department and other people that are remote that you never would have had to connect with. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, what I observe is the connections went from four groups to eight groups, but connections increase exponentially. So when you go from four, you have six connections, six two-way connections among four. When you go to eight, you have 27 two-way connections. And it sank them in a lot of copier companies. There was a huge consolidation around 2000 because of the fallout from that attempt to put copiers on the network. Very, very interesting. So let's conclude with some commentary on complexity in marketing and some advice that perhaps, and maybe a little bit of a glimpse of the book that you're writing. All right. Well, I think, oh boy, where do you, where exactly do I start? You know, it's right, a, right now right. it's a lot of words. And, but I think one place I'll, I'll go is I want to talk a little bit about instability versus stability. And this is one of the topics I look at within the book, which is, you know, we're not trained in business to necessarily look at how is my work behaving? Is it stable work or unstable work? Because you have to approach it differently if it's stable versus when it's unstable. So for example, if you're doing the first communication for a product that's brand new, that's a highly unstable act. And what happens with that is that the smallest change or smallest error can send you way off into the distance because it's unstable. So for example, here's an example from the book. I'm going to spill 
But here it is. An example from the book is we all know those pay stations, right? At the cash mm-hmm. register, all those mm-hmm. pay terminals, right? And you can put your card into it or you can use Apple Pay. But it also has a contactless thing where you, and it tells you to tap to pay. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been watching this for about five years and talked with a lot of people at retail, partly because I was frustrated myself. It turns out if you tap to pay, you cannot pay. And the error is the word tap. Because what you have to do on those terminals is lay the card on the terminal until it beeps, which yeah. incidentally is what they say about those terminals in Sweden. You know, J.P. Castle that I've talked about, he said, oh, that's what it says over here. But in the U.S., they said tap. So in other words, they chose three letters and ensured intense customer frustration for years to come. <laughs> and I guess, you know, and not everything is quite that volatile unstable. But when you're doing something new, you have to treat it very differently. And the words you pay attention to, where an ad creative might be paying attention to words that paint a beautiful picture of what this place is, you may have functional words where the difference between tap and hold for beep, which is what they say in uh, Sweden, makes a difference between success and failure. And stability is a big deal, but we don't know how to talk about it. And complexity begins to give us ways to talk about some of these subtleties that have stung us all when we've done something that's less stable than we thought. That's excellent. That's excellent. Also, one walk away is don't try to redefine a word. Tap means tap. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. Well, it's true. It's absolutely true because the, the dictionary definition of tap includes a sound, right? Right. A that's tap right. Is a sound. And, and so tap that's dance. What, you tap dance. That's right. So the retail people I talk about, they all say, well, yeah, people tap the edge of the card on the terminal and tap it again and tap it again and tap it again and tap it again. It never works until they finally say, oh, screw it and put it in the machine. I'm never um, using this again. <laughs> yeah, and that's the problem. You know, they picked a word without, you know, caring. Now, how did that happen? Oh, I've dug into it a little bit. Turns out the credit card world is incredibly bureaucratic and filled with ISO standards and things like that. So my guess is the teams just lacked the experience within unstable situations to be able to take the care they needed to with that word. Yeah, I tell you, I think it's not a it's not a day that goes by that I'm not feeling or noting mm-hmm. some aspect of complexity mm-hmm. in what we do in marketing. You know, it just it's just hard. You know, another example I was sharing in our pre-call was you generate a report that's supposed to help you make a decision. Mm-hmm. And the report says turn left and you're looking at the road and saying, I don't think so. Right. So the report isn't doing what it's supposed to do because it's not using all the data that you have that it thinks it does, but it doesn't. So at the end, and and you're lucky when that's the case, when you actually note that the advice is not to be followed. It's a lot worse when the advice you don't know and then you do follow it. And of course, there's a problem that we're going to have with AI in spades, and we should definitely come back to that as well. So maybe with that, we will conclude this episode. It sounds like a good idea to me. All right, perfect. Thank you, everybody, for joining. As always, look forward to catching up again next time. Thank you, Doug. All right, thank you, Shane. All right, take care. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.